Thanks, Peter and Mark, and good morning, guys. Uh, welcome to Hiawatha again. If you are a friend or a family member of someone who attends Hiawatha, maybe you're, you're just joining us for one of the first times ever, uh, welcome to our, our virtual service here. Uh, it's great to, to see you from afar as well. My name's Chris. I'm, I'm one of the four pastors here. You've met all of our pastors this morning, all four of us, um, and we are, are glad to see you guys. We really miss you and are praying continually for you uh, throughout this difficult season. Um, but we are in the Gospel of Mark right now. We are um, making our way through our series in Mark. Uh, we have five sermons, uh, four weeks and five sermons in the Gospel of Mark, which we're calling Approaching Easter in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, today is Mark 11, 1 to 11, the triumphal entry. So if you have a Bible or a phone app and you want to turn there, I highly recommend that you do that. Uh, it's uh, all the more helpful to follow along that way and to see what we're talking about in context. So Mark 11, 1 to 11, and again, we're approaching Easter. Remember, as I said last week, uh, that has kind of a dual meaning for us. It means that uh, technically we are approaching Easter uh, in a very technical kind of calendar sense. We are approaching Easter chronologically throughout the, the Gospel of Mark, and yet we're approaching it thematically as well. So we're looking at passages that approach uh, Easter, that they lead us to uh, the, the, the first and, and ultimate Good Friday and Easter Sunday where Jesus died and then three days later, he rose triumphantly from the grave. And so today is Palm Sunday on the calendar and in today's passage. So we begin Holy Week by looking at Jesus' triumphal procession into the city. So let's read from Mark 11, 1 to 11 to get started. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door in the street, outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All right, so kind of an interesting passage and maybe a little bit weird, parts that are a little bit strange. Uh, Jesus has been, as we learned from others of the Gospels that use this exact language, he has been setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Up to this point, he's been in Galilee. The uh, The first three years of his ministry were spent in Galilee, which is a northern province, and after those three years were kind of starting to wrap up, he set his face to go south to Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, in order to fulfill his mission, which was to be rejected unto death, so he might die on Passover for the sins of the world. And so we call this Palm Sunday because the people laid leafy branches, it says, or in the Gospel of John, it says palm branches, down in front of him with their cloaks, and shouted, Hosanna, which is a shout of, of acclamation, and it's an expression of the, 
of joy at the salvation of God. So it's a kind of kingly coronation, really. But what's odd about it is the first thing that Jesus does when he approaches the city is he asks for a colt. He asks for a donkey. And one of the big questions we'll talk about today is why? Why does he do this? In fact, all four gospel accounts include mention of Jesus asking for the colt or the donkey in this exact way. So it's very important. But why? Why is it important? Why does he do this? Why does he have to ride on a donkey into the city? And the greater question is, what type of king is he? If this is a kingly coronation, and it is, what do we learn about him? This is theology, remember, not just history. This passage is here to tell us something about God. It's here to tell us something about Jesus and Jesus' gospel, his good news, the fact that he came into the world to die for sinners like us. So who is Jesus and what kind of king is he? What are we learning about him here in this specific passage on the first Palm Sunday ever as he's triumphantly entering into the city What kind of king is he? That's the big question today. And I have three angles I want to unpack. The first is a little more obvious, and then we move into two uh, not as obvious angles. But all will basically tackle the same kind of question, which is, who is Jesus? And that's that's the greatest of questions we can ever ask. Who is he? What did he come to do? And what does that mean for my life? All right, so the first answer is, he is a humble king. So one reason it's important for Jesus to identify the cult in the first place, but then to ride on it into the city, is he wants to fulfill prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, spoken hundreds of years before this event in Mark 11, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. All right, so Zion in this passage, which is a word you see a lot in the prophets in the Old Testament, is a prophetic name for the new figurative mountain of salvation, essentially. Associated with Jesus, associated with the destruction of sin, and associated with God's eternal kingdom. So it's a mountain that would come to replace Mount Sinai, which was the mountain of the law, that represented the Old Testament. More on that later. But with this in mind, this prophecy then is really for the church. It's, it's for you and me or for Christians who believe in the gospel because we are the recipient of Christ and his grace, right? So we are then, to use Zechariah 9 language, we are, we are the spiritual daughter of Jerusalem who is asked to behold our king, to look at him. And here's the gospel. He is a king, quote, coming to us, having salvation. Coming to us, having salvation. And so what Zechariah sees is salvation coming towards us, meaning it's not inside us. Salvation is not inside us, nor is it something we approach ourselves or find. Salvation bursts into the Jerusalem of our hearts and our souls from outside of us. And so Relatedly, then, it says, he has salvation. It says he, he has it in his hands. He, he possesses it. It's his possession, meaning it belongs to him, meaning it's his to give, not ours to exert. Zechariah 9 does not say 
he came teaching salvation, in other words. But instead, he came having salvation. Seeing us from afar, pushing through the crowd to get to us so he could give us the greatest gift of all, which is his salvation, which is himself. All right, then it says, humble and mounted on a donkey. To go back to Zechariah 9, humble and mounted on a donkey, which of course is a direct uh, pointer to Palm Sunday, and, and Mark 11 is a direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9 on a pretty blatant level. But another purpose of Jesus doing all of this is to demonstrate his humility. Humble and mounted on a donkey. So another reason he's entering the city this way is to tell us something of his character. He's a humble king. And his death, more than the cults, would be the ultimate expression of that humility. That's really important to see. Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Jesus being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this is important because it means that his triumphant, kingly procession into the city wouldn't kill us or overwhelm us, but it would kill and overwhelm our sin. This is where his humility and his meekness uh, comes into play. And one thing we need to understand, or for some of you remember here, is that some or even many of the Jews, though present here in the city watching the procession, in excitement, maybe over the types of miracles that Jesus was performing, and we learn in the Gospel of John that many of the crowd is here, because they just saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And so as you would expect, they, they want to get close to this guy. He raised Lazarus in a pretty, pretty public manner from the dead. And so a lot of the Jews, though, though present over the miracles he's performing, they were still expecting Jesus to be a physical wartime king or a Messiah who would enter the city, maybe gather an army, and take the fight to the Romans who were occupying their land oppressively at this time, who would fight maybe exactly like the kings of old in the Old Testament used to, like David. But here's the thing. Jesus was not that type of king. And this is not the first time we're seeing this. He's quite clear about this. But Jesus wasn't that type of king. He was a better type of king, a spiritual king, a greater king, a more cosmic king. Nor were the Romans the true enemy. Sin was. So do you see how this changes the whole narrative? Jesus rode into the city to ultimately destroy our sin and to destroy death and to overwhelm dark angels. And yet he did so humbly and gently without harm to sinners like us at the same time, knowing he would take the harm for them or for us. We can't overlook this. God's kingdom, for God's kingdom to benefit us and not crush us, Jesus had to come in this way, humbly, willing to die as a human being for sinful human beings. So sin could be destroyed without tearing us sinners apart in the process. And so understand this. When you see things like this in the gospel accounts or elsewhere in the Bible, like a characteristic of Jesus that's a little more general, 
in this case, his humility or his meekness. Jesus' meekness in the early pre-cross parts of the gospel accounts, which began at a manger, remember, that's quite meek and humble as well, right? But now ends with a donkey. His meekness there in, in those stories, but everything in between, points to his meekness on the cross. That's the point. This is not just an instance of meekness, but a harbinger of his future meekness on the cross, his coming meekness and humility on the cross, where he would fight the greatest battle of all time in love for you and me. All right? That's the first type of, or or the first angle on the question of what type of king is Jesus. He is a meek, humble king, fulfilling prophecy, riding humbly into the city, mounted on a donkey. All right? Uh, That's the most obvious one. The second two here are a little bit less obvious, but I want to go into them. We learn the same lessons ultimately from these angles, uh, just more in a heightened, more specific uh, way. All right? So the second answer to the question is, uh, Jesus is a burden-lifting king. And so again, we ask the question, why the urgency to find a colt or a donkey? Why does he have to do this at all? Why does he say to his two disciples, go in and, and ask or take this donkey when someone asks you or kind of takes you to task over it? Just say the Lord needs it and they'll let you go. It's really strange. But why do all four gospel accounts make mention of this event? And then again, relatedly, what type of king is Jesus through this? When we ask those questions, the second answer to the question has to do with the cult itself being a symbolic picture of Jesus Christ. Many of you know this, but animals typify and resemble Jesus in many other places in the Bible. The most notable might be when it says that Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, or more broadly, when he is shown to be the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, which was an animal sacrifice system. Last Christmas, I preached on how Jesus fulfills the two turtle dove sacrifice of Mary and Joseph in Luke 2. Years ago, I preached how the lion who was torn apart by Samson resembles Jesus in its own right. The list goes on and on and on. But one of the more relevant instances of this is Balaam's donkey in Numbers 22. Some of you guys know this story, some of you don't. Uh, But if you don't, it's this strange story where this guy named Balaam is riding a donkey and his donkey ahead of him on the road sees an angel ready to kill its owner, Balaam, because Balaam sinned grievously. But Balaam can't see it. So his donkey can see the angel ready to slay Balaam, but Balaam can't see it. And so the donkey, to protect Balaam, lies down in the road saving Balaam but frustrating him at the same time because he can't see the same angel. So he's just thinking, why is my donkey not moving? And so he starts to kick the donkey and strike the donkey in frustration. So the donkey's harmed, he's struck, but he saves Balaam. All right, and so in all of this, the donkey typifies Christ, who is harmed for us, but who, who saves us from certain death through his own punishment and harm. All right, this is where Mark 11 comes in, though. Another donkey comes into the story, one associated with Christ's 
initial procession unto death to save us from our sins. It's a cult that was never sat on, the, the Bible says, like Christ later would be laid in a tomb that would be called a tomb that no one has ever been laid in from John 19.41. A cult designated for a special purpose like Christ was. An animal that is called in Matthew's account a beast of burden who is carrying Christ like Christ would later bear the burden of our sins and not just ours but the whole world's. Even more, it was a colt who was tied up like Christ, it says. Like later, Christ would be tied and nailed to a cross. And more specifically, a donkey who was tied specifically to a door. Like Christ's binding would ultimately open up a door for sinners like us to walk through to be with God forever. Genesis 49.11 also helps here. It is a prophecy about the tribe of Judah, the tribe of kings, uh, from which Jesus eventually comes. And so really it's a prophecy about King Jesus. It says this, Genesis 49.11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he was washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. All right, so not only is this a blatant prediction of a king who would come from the tribe of Judah who would have his colt tied up, we see that here clearly in the verse, but it also connects all of that with, quote, washing his garments in wine, the blood of grapes, which is an allusion to his bloody crucifixion. And so again, donkeys, burden-carrying, kingship, and blood sacrifice are all tied together thematically in the Bible. And so therefore, they should also be tied together thematically in the immediate context of Mark 11 as well. Let me say again, and a little bit differently. Christ was riding into the city on a picture of what he was going to be and what he was going to do just days from this event. Like the colt was carrying salvation on his back, so would Christ himself be the sin carrier, be the cross carrier, and be the burden carrier. And our sin is the burden. Maybe this is why we, we see people throwing their coats on top of the donkey, but also in front of the donkey, so that we would be, be reminded that Jesus would carry our sins with him on the cross, like he's carrying our coats. Or maybe we'd be reminded that he would trample our sins underfoot as well. In fact, Micah 7.19 says this in another prophecy from the Old Testament, speaking of and, and to God. It says, you will again have compassion on us. And here's the key. You will tread our sins underfoot. And so you see what's happening Jesus is on his way into the city to trample our sins. Humbly, though, without crushing us in the process. But instead, by being crushed for us. By being the, 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 the ultimate beast of burden. The ultimate cult. The ultimate one to bear the burden. To take the brunt for you and me. I mean, that is, far and away, the best news ever.
All right. And the third and final angle today is that Jesus is a gracious king. So he's a humble king. He is a burden-carrying or burden-lifting king. And he is a gracious king as well. Let me read verse 11 again, the last verse in today's passage that gets at this idea. It says this, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with his disciples, or with the twelve. All right? So, now if you're a Jew in that moment, and you're hoping for immediate salvation from Roman rule, this is about as anticlimactic as you can get. Think about it. You're there watching Jesus, who you believe to be Israel's king, the son of David, ride into the city where the kings of old used to rule. And then he not only goes into the city, he goes into the temple, which signifies God's presence among the people. And then you start to think, it's happening, it's starting to happen. But then Jesus just goes into the temple and kind of calmly checks his watch and maybe yawns a couple of times, realizes it's kind of late, and then leaves the city altogether to stay and lodge at Bethany, which is a small village outside the city. The end. All right, so this is actually, so it's very anticlimactic if you have the wrong expectations about Jesus, but if you have the right ones, it actually makes all the sense in the world, theologically. It's actually quite important that this happens. And what we learn from this is, not only does this again signify to us that he was not here to liberate the Jews from Roman oppression, but to liberate us from sin, but it goes beyond that. It also shows us that Jesus' Holy Week ritual of spending the evenings outside the city, every night of Holy Week he does this, he goes back out to Bethany to spend the night, his Holy Week ritual of spending the evenings outside the city points to the fact that he would die outside the city as well, which the Bible makes a big deal of. Some of you guys know this. Some, if you've never heard this before, please hear this. The Bible makes a big deal of, about this. For us, this is a passing detail, right? We, wouldn't, we don't think much about this, but the, thematically, symbolically, this is extremely significant because it means when Jesus dies outside the city, it means that he dies apart from what the city and the temple represented. He dies in a way that's apart from it, that's different from it. And what the city represented and the temple represented was the law, the commandments, the whole Old Testament system. The fact that Jesus went into the temple but then just left it all together tells us that he did not come to glorify or magnify or underscore the law as a continued means by which sinners are reconciled to God, but instead to establish a New Testament altogether. You see, this simple phrase, Jesus went out to Bethany, is chock full of rich theology. Because it means that he, in an even greater way, went out away from the Old Testament to establish a new one away from Jerusalem to Bethany, away from Sinai to Zion, away from our works to His grace, away from us bearing the burden of our sin to Him bearing the burden, 
away from us wearing the coat of our sin to, to us throwing our coats of sin on him so he might wear it on the cross and trample it. Away from us being tied up by our sin to him being tied up by our sin. Hebrews 13 invites us to this by saying, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. Let us then, this is the big therefore, this is why it's important, let us then go to him outside the camp. You see, it doesn't say Jesus came and died in the temple or, he, or that we're, we're saved by our works, but instead outside the camp. Go to him not by your works. Go to him not in the temple, but go to him outside what all of that represents. Go to him at Calvary, at Golgotha. Go to him at the cross where he suffered among criminals, though he was the perfect son of God. Go to where he substituted himself for you. Go to where the love of God is seen most fully. Go to the burden carrier. Go to the one who was struck to save you from dangers you can't even see. That I can't. That none of us can. Our sin is way worse than we imagine. And we don't understand. But he does. He sees it in a crystal clear way. Like, like Balaam's donkey did back in Numbers 22. He can totally see it. He knows what he's doing. He's in control. And he's fighting all of our battles. And this, I think, is how Jesus cries out to us from this passage. Again, this is not just history. This is not even ultimately about waving palm branches. That's not what when we when we read this passage. This is about much more than that. This is about substitutionary atonement. This is about what's coming five days from now. Good Friday. This is how he cries out to us. He, he, he says through Mark 11... My people, I love you. I was willing to be tied up for you, to bear your burden, to become humble to the point of death on a cross for you. Not only was I tied to a cross, but as the colt I rode shows, I was also tied to a door, an open door, for all sinners who simply call on my name to walk through into new life forever. Believe in me, trust in me, cast yourself upon my cross, cling to it, gaze into my empty tomb, and be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for what it represents. Uh, Thank you, Father, for um, not just sending your son into the city, but sending him into the city on a cult to be to ride on what he was going to be, to, to ride on and to be mounted on what he was going to do for us. And that is bear a burden. That is to be struck. That is to be a sin trampler. One who would come to be a sin offering uh, for sinners like us. Father, thank you that you are a, a very, very good God who was willing to be slandered, who was willing to be derided, um, Father, help us to believe the gospel this week, this Easter week. Uh, Things are not well in our souls. Things are not well in our world. We're feeling that now. Things are very bad. We need to feel this. So we'll cling to Christ, not as an example to follow, 
uh, but one who came to substitute himself for us. One who would come as a king, but a king who would fight our battles in a spiritual way, who would slay sin, slay our sins, and who would trample our sins underfoot and show compassion in that manner. God, like the colt again, was, was tied to the door. Help us to walk freely through the open door of Christ. As Jesus, you yourself say in, in John 10, I am the door. I am the door. There's only one door to take, only one path to, to God, and that is through the way of Jesus' death and resurrection. Help us to do that now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.